0: So specific to muscle stimulation devices, we see in research that stimulation combined with voluntary muscle activation leads to better strength gains than stimulation applied passively. And specific to our current use case, we saw a quadriceps stimulation device operate similarly to what we're doing, could show a near doubling in strength recovery within four weeks.
1: Welcome to the Medical Device Innovators podcast. On this podcast, we explore ways to accelerate development and get your medical devices to market faster and more efficiently. We engage with industry professionals that are changing the game and talk through the processes and challenges shaping medical device development in the current day and age with ever shortening timelines and budgets. This episode is brought to you by System Insight Engineering, a leading innovator in leveraging computational modeling and simulation to reduce time and cost in getting medical devices to market through insightful design decisions, dot to support regulatory approval, and clarifying understanding into device performance. System Insight Engineering helps you to better your bottom line so you can help more people faster. Find out more at siesimulation.com. Here's your host, Arlen Ward.
2: All right, welcome to another episode of the Medical Device Innovators podcast. I have with me today, Josh Rabinowitz from Articulate Labs. We're going to talk a bit about their device, which isn't on the market yet, but we're going to talk about that journey. I thought it'd be interesting to have someone on that's uh, in the thick of it right now and hear about the current challenges and the current climate, things like that, uh, as well as covering the lessons learned and things that would be advice for others. But uh, welcome, Josh. Thank you very much for having me. And so you're a co-founder and CEO for Articulate Labs. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And why don't you tell us a little bit about Articulate
0: Labs? Sure. Our company develops wearable medical devices to speed and improve physical rehabilitation by augmenting user movement with electrical muscle stimulation. In effect, we are taking something that's been used, been proven to be effective in physical medicine and making it mobile, making it adaptive making it more convenient and ultimately more effective for the end user by synchronizing stimulation pulses with muscle activity during things such as walking your dog or shopping for groceries. First application that we're focusing on is rehabilitating quadriceps or thigh musculature around knees that are impacted by chronic conditions like osteoarthritis or that have recently been surgically repaired.
2: Okay, so this isn't just a matter of providing simulation in, but there's a feedback part as well. It sounds like where the device is monitoring activity. So it's not just a passive device is
0: what I'm saying. It is as far from passive as we can get it. It's only active when the user is active. And to your earlier point about function, the secret sauce, as it were, the thing that just differentiates our technology from existing Stimulation devices and many other physical rehabilitation devices is that adaptation capability. Specifically, we are building a gate cycle based on the user's movement rather than trying to impose a averaged or normal gate cycle on those users. And then modeling or distilling their movements after building the gate cycle, distilling their movements down into sets of force vectors upon a model of that joint running on our device. And then having our device look for and effectively anticipate replication of particular sets of force vectors in order to dynamically drive stimulation, timing, and location in sync with movement.
2: What's the overall advantage to that over
0: traditional physical therapy and maybe even muscle stimulation devices? So specific to muscle stimulation devices, we see in research that stimulation combined with voluntary muscle activation leads to better strength gains than stimulation applied passively. And specific to our current use case, we saw in a 2017 study that effectively jerry-rigged an existing quadriceps stimulation device to operate similarly to what we're doing could show a near doubling in strength recovery within four weeks of ACL repair. That's what we believe we can achieve with our devices, but to do so, again, not specifically just in a physical therapy clinic, but as you're going through normal everyday activity. To the initial point with regards to physical therapy... We ultimately don't want to pose this as a replacement for physical therapy. Lots happens in physical medicine beyond muscle strengthening and retraining that we don't necessarily provide with our device. When it comes to sharing our work with physical therapists, we really stress that this is not intended to replace you or take food off of your plate. This is a tool that you can use to effectively automate some of the more mindless elements of physical medicine, which is just standing over someone while they're doing leg raises or while they're using an electrical stimulation device, having all that occur outside of the clinic, which then increases the amount of cycles that they have available either for or one-on-one time with their patients or for increasing patient throughput.
2: How far along are you in this process so far? I can think of lots of different elements that go into this. It's not a straightforward, done-in-six-months project, I imagine.
0: No, and we've been at this for some time. And part of that is because neither my co-founder nor I came into this with specific medical background. So we've had to work our way up the learning curves with regards to regulatory affairs, quality affairs, manufacturing, reimbursement, and all the attendant skill sets or bits of knowledge you need to have. But to answer your question, we have a high-fidelity working prototype that we've put together. We could demonstrate 99% accuracy on stimulation, timing, and location in stride with users presenting with patellofemoral pain syndrome and that was collected at the University of Texas at Austin. So anyway, we are now working with a contract manufacturer local to us to move from high-fidelity prototype to manufacturing slash FDA-ready device with the goal of being able to launch later this year, early next year.
2: Nice. Okay. And you had mentioned a co-founder, so you want to tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about the background of how this device came to be? Sure.
0: My co-founder is herbie Kern. He is a so co-founder and chief science officer for Articulum Labs. He comes into this with a heavy amount of expertise in control systems and embedded design. Much of his previous background was first started off in music. but he was a musician for several years before actually, you know transitioning into digital signal processing, as he wanted to build his own synthesizer, which led in an unexpected way to him working for the Skunk Works for Ford, Chrysler, and GM over the course of about 30 years. A lot of the same principles that are going into our device currently are ones that had previously been worked on for use in next-generation powertrain and automatic transmission design. Mm -hmm. I also transitioned from that into his first startup, which was a fabulous semiconductor company that that had developed a new class of audio amplifier. It was around that time that he lost his right leg in a motorcycle accident. And one of the indirect outcomes of that situation was that he wore out the cartilage in the knee of his fully intact leg as he was relearning to walk, as all of his body weight is now being borne on one leg instead of two. At that age, his overseen orthopedic surgeon told him to actually delay surgery if he can, exhaust all the conservative options available to him. And out of the various conservative options available to him, he found physical therapy with an emphasis on strengthening the muscle around that impacted joint, the best to actually help him reduce pain and reduce dysfunction and be able to walk and work the way he expected to. The problem he ran into, we've now found is a highly common situation, is that Few can get all of the physical therapy that they require. For him, work and family commitments, as well as the physical therapy clinic that he was told to go to being a half-hour drive each way, made it really difficult to make all the physical therapy that he required. And we see that 70% of the population that's prescribed physical therapy doesn't make all their sessions and isn't compliant with their home-based regimens, in large part because of that difficulty with access. While he was there, he was using muscle stimulation and specifically doing so in time with leg lifts while sitting on the edge of a bench. And with his work previously in with those transmission systems, with those powertrains, he's wondering, why am I driving a half hour to follow this device? Why is this device not following me? Because the technology to do that already exists. That's what started him down that path. I got involved after looking up a little bit more about knee osteoarthritis. And we know this is not something we knew, you know, again, no medical background. We didn't know anything about this condition. We were both operating under the impression this is something that specifically impacted amputees. Only to find out at that time it was about 12 million in the U.S. were symptomatic and seeking treatment for knee osteoarthritis. Now 15 million. And that this is, you know, the quadriceps atrophy, quadriceps inhibition, insufficient physical medicine, this is a very common situation. So what started off as a something of a hobby for her to help him address a need that he had quickly became something that we realized we should be trying to share with others.
2: So how did the two of you become connected? Was it were your friends beforehand? Obviously, he was thrown into this
0: completely through the accident, but you said your background also
2: was not in medical devices. So
0: full disclosure, we also happen to be significant others. So I was already in the space when this happened. Now, that being said, we did previously attempt to bring in other folks with specific experience. We thought had more experience in this space than I had. I did not feel comfortable taking on that role of CEO, but what I found going along as time went on that for one reason or another, I seemed to do a pretty decent job telling the story of this company. Bringing others along, figuring out what gaps we had in our knowledge or skill set and finding ways to fill them in the most time and cost efficient way possible. Yeah, I've always found from a CEO standpoint, I mean,
2: my company was growing and had employees and realized that a lot of the role of the CEO is to manage that gap, right? Between where things are and what you need in order to make that next step. So, yeah, being able to tell a story and manage that gap, that's a good start to the skill set, I think. And I'm certainly no expert in what it takes to be a CEO, but yeah, I think that's a great start and great insight for sure. What's your background before this
0: then? If it's not medical devices, how far off are we? <laughs> oh, quite a bit. My education was in political theory. I started off in policy work first in Michigan, around the House of Representatives uh, later, later on with the Texas Senate. I found it was not uh, liked the work, but I didn't like the environment necessarily. I had been volunteering for a college access nonprofit while I was working for the Texas Senate because there was just so much downtime, and I hated how much time I was wasting. And actually, started working for them as an Americorps member for a couple of years, and that gave me the opportunity to really start building systems from the ground up to do things like help write multi-million dollar grant proposals or overhaul the financial system, overhaul IT. I actually assist with the program's work of assisting low-income or first-generation students to get into and persist through college. And that's where I realized that I enjoy being able to build things from the ground up, to be airdropped into unfamiliar situations and find a path forward. And so when my time was done in and around the nonprofit space, and this was starting to open up, it felt at the time like a natural next step. Now, that being said, mildly related, I have run multiple marathons. And the very first one I ran, I had no idea what I was doing. I paid for a subscription to Runner's World, and I bought a new pair of shoes and basically just followed the first training plan I found, not realizing just what exactly was ahead of me. I came in blissfully naive to everything that needed to be done, and now I know a lot more, but... I think that the same necessity of just finding ways to put one foot in front of the other to understand where you're going and to just keep pushing for that finish line, no matter how far away it seems, that remains a necessary trait. So now we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk a bit
2: about what you've learned along the way. Coming from a background that I'm not exactly sure how you get from politics to medical devices, but I do understand what you mean by coming in and developing systems. I think that's a huge part. Of any endeavor like this what are some of the major things you've learned along the way that you think others that might have ideas that they want to bring to market to make reality what sort of advice would you have for them
0: boy first and foremost is understand if what you're looking at is specifically in the medical space understand what the rules and regulations are around getting into that space fortunately we've never run afoul of the fda we've not done anything wrong there but at the very beginning we We're very happy about not knowing what we didn't know. And that's not acceptable anymore, especially with the proliferation of IOT in medical devices and the propensity not just for having devices that provide risk to someone's personal well-being, but also the ability to transmit all kinds of information to anywhere. So that's a concern. If possible, find a regulatory consultant, take them out to lunch or... Otherwise pay for their time and get kind of that one on one level understanding of what class of device, what product code do you line up with? Is this eligible for the 510K accelerated pathway? Is there a device like yours that you could prove substantial equivalence to? Or is this something so novel that you're gonna have to go the de novo route? And that makes a massive difference when it comes to fundraising. One, you know, our device is 510K. We believe we'll be able to achieve clearance with under a million dollars under 12 months of work. If you were to go into de novo, which would require a lot more clinical data and a lot longer application, now your timeline's probably closer, at least 18, 24 months, and their budget probably doubled. That's one consideration. Reimbursement and understanding health economics in general, especially the worst part of this work, is that there are loads of devices that have been invented that would do a fantastic job helping people heal better, heal faster. Return to life or return to a better life faster, but the right people didn't make money on it. So it never saw the light of day. Understand, you know, for us, we have suppliers selling to surgeons at surgical centers or physical therapy clinics and for physical therapists at clinics who are then offering our devices to end users. Every single one of those parties has a different set of priorities, different way that they either make money or otherwise value what you're contributing. And you have to make sure to consider all of those all those factors and to be able to build a business model that successfully balances all of those needs for time efficiency, cost efficiency, revenue generation, general efficacy, while also providing you a sufficient margin to even justify going forward with the company. I'd say the last big thing that comes to the top of my mind is that much of what I've had to learn In this role has honestly been more emotional than pragmatic. It was not something that I'm not an engineer, but I do come at this work with something of an engineer's mindset. And that's not always the best when it comes to bringing in other people to work with you or pitching investors. There's a desire to show your work, show your math as to not just how and why this device works the way it does, but all the work that you've done to de-risk the deal, everything that you've done to prove that you are being conscientious, you're taking the right steps, you've got a clear path to profitability, but it's very easy in doing so to lose that or to ignore the storytelling element or to ignore the human element. That it's something I have to work every day, not just to think about how we share this work, in t- you know, not in terms of just dollars saved or dollars generated, but in terms of sales, What does it mean to have functional mobility, functional independence? What does it mean to be able to move without pain, to be able to pick up your granddaughter without your knee screaming, for example, and also to do a better job reaching out to our team members, our advisors, our investors, our board members to maintain those open lines of communication, maintain those relationships rather than just solely focusing on everything that's on my to-do list.
2: That's so easy to get buried in the numbers, right? Like it's a story of how many patients and how much time you can save and make them twice as strong. And here's the cost of goods and here's how much the reimbursement is and all of those numbers. But really the story of being able to help individuals and change their lives really are the stories that stick with everyone that's involved in the mm-hmm. project, whether it's someone from a technical standpoint as you're trying to recruit members to your team or whether you're looking for investors or recruiting other people into the cause, as the case may be. Yeah, I can definitely see that that storytelling becomes a huge part of it,
0: right? Because that's what sticks with people, not necessarily the numbers,
2: even though the numbers are important. I mean, we certainly can't
0: ignore. It's what I had to learn is it's the numbers are necessary, but they're not sufficient.
2: Yeah, that's a great way to put it for sure.
0: So coming into this from the
2: outside of medical devices, have you had challenges around the clinical side of things, clinical access, talking to... Physical therapists, doctors, others, stakeholders, have you found that to be fairly receptive? Have you found a method that works really well for gaining access to the clinical side of things?
0: Yeah, we've been very pleasantly surprised in the recent past to be able to have pretty ready access to any physician or physical therapist that we want to talk to. And we generally find folks to be receptive. I will say what, when we started, I think, first of all, we overstated the claims of what the device could do. It spoke to our aspirations as opposed to what we could prove, which led into problem two, which was failing to account for the fact that we're talking to people, specifically physical therapists, who make money on and are able to feed themselves and their loved ones through the act of physical therapy. coming in, overstating claims and then look, talking about to kind of an earlier point, the idea of replacing elements of physical therapy or replacing elements of orthopedic, orthopedic surgery was a surefire way to make sure that physical therapists and orthopedic surgeons thought we were cranks or thought we were threats and that they would not want to have anything to do with us. What we had to learn was kind of pulling back from that initial stance was, first of all, you know, to come in with sufficient expertise, to be able to speak to the physical therapist or the orthopedic surgeon, whoever we're meeting with, be able to meet them where they are in their level of expertise in this one particular place. I can maintain a half an hour long conversation around knee surgery with an orthopedic surgeon or around knee rehabilitation with a physical therapist. doesn't mean that I believe or have any capability to cover the other 90, 95, 99% of what they do on a regular basis. But I put in the work to show proper respect and understanding for where they are, what they're capable of, and how we could offer this as a tool for them to use as opposed to a replacement. Also, you know, having respect for their time, having respect for workflow, learning what are the chief inconveniences that they deal with that may have absolutely nothing to do with muscle strengthening. That could be the last consideration on their mind. And in many cases, it is because it's expected that this is a thing that sort of takes care of itself, even though in many cases it doesn't. So I'd say that's being able to speak with a level of earned expertise in that one particular sliver of the space that they're in, striving to understand how we can make their lives better, as opposed to just being myopic and saying, how do you make us money? And Lastly, just asking at the very end, is there anything we can do to help you? Is there anything that you're looking for? And generally, the answer is no. But every now and again, there is an opportunity to make an introduction or two that helps out the person that helps us. Or at the very least, you let them know that you're amenable to the idea of this being a two-way street and that you're not just trying to take things wholesale from whoever you're talking to.
2: Yeah, becomes part of an ecosystem rather than you're part of the whole rather than just trying to extract resources, like you said. Got to get in there and do the homework so that you know how to talk the language as well. I think that's another key point because nobody likes to have their time wasted for sure. So from a technical standpoint of the device, my background is all about energy tissue interactions, applying electrical energy to stimulate nerves and muscles. We could dive into that for hours. But from a technical standpoint, as you're putting this together, what was something that really surprised you about building this device that you maybe didn't anticipate
0: coming into it? So one thing I think we didn't truly understand that we were still I feel like we're learning is about usability. and it, it helps now that FDA does have a draft guidance around usability. But I think when we started, usability was not really strong. It wasn't a strong consideration in the eyes of FDA. It was absolutely something that existed, but it was not something that we saw as a hurdle to get over to FDA clearance. And furthermore, at the time that we started, when it comes to risk mitigation, you know, just telling people to read the manual was effective for handling like a quarter to the third of the possible risks that you could come up with on this device. None of that's viable anymore. You've got to think about not just your end users, but the clinicians that are going to be actually administering this device. Especially now that there's so much pressure on clinicians to optimize time. You cannot have a clinician either flexing with your device for half an hour or having them see one of your sales reps fuss with your device for half an hour, you need to be able to get in and out fast because they can't control the amount of reimbursement that's coming in off of Medicare or private insurers. Those rates are generally only going down, not up. So if you can't control the amount of money that you're making, you can't control the time being spent to make that money. So time efficiency is now a huge element of what we have to consider with usability. To your point about energy transfer into tissue, one silly thing we absolutely did not consider with our initial designs or with the electrodes that we had developed was that women shave their legs. And when women shave their legs, you're talking about having little little gaps in the pore across which current will arc, in effect, creating pain. And so there is work that had to be done to think about how to make sure that the electrode plus the conductive substrate that was applied could avoid creating that painful sensation of kind of arcing across a gap for the user. Adapting to different leg shapes and sizes is something that took a massive amount of trial and error to build up for our device, to build up a form factor that looks like a brace, but ultimately is intended to, not intended to provide any physical bracing, It's intended to keep the inertial measurement units above and below the knee at fixed distances from one another keep electrodes over the muscle bellies throughout flexion and extension. That's something that's not, or only recently we've seen done a couple of times and not done in Mm -hmm. the way that we've done it, which is appears to be far lighter, far lower profile, far more able to fit under more pieces of clothing than what's currently available. I think those usability form factor developments, electrode slash current delivery, those are the places where we had some surprises that we had to work through.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Current is one of those things that kind of goes where it wants, right? You don't have near as much control over it as you'd like to think. And finally, as you're building this team to develop the device, what do you look for? What's something outside of the norm in terms of technical competence and things like that? What do you look for in team members or people, whether they're employees or contractors or people that, you know, experts that you bring in
0: as consultants, what do you look for in people to make sure that they're a good fit for your team? So pragmatically, we're always looking at our gaps, try to be honest with ourselves about what we don't know or what skill sets we don't have versus what are our priorities in the next three, six, 12, 24, 24 months. And understanding ideally what kind of person or what kind of skill set would we bring in for this or you know talking with our advisors and saying, I'm not sure how to approach problem X. what kind of person would you either have in your network or what kind of person would you suggest that we go seek out for that purpose? We did hire a full-time chief commercial officer towards the end of last year, but otherwise the vast majority of when we're bringing folks to engage with us were, Doing so on a fixed time or contract or part-time basis, it's very rare that we bring in more full-time people because for us right now, while we've got plenty of work, we don't necessarily have sufficient work for people who are very specialized in a given area. That's something we tend towards people who are either slightly more generalist, as we are ourselves are slightly more generalist, or at least have an inclination towards learning something new. Towards picking up a new skill, not necessarily because we want need everyone to do so, but because one thing we've seen that does not really work well with my co-founder or myself is dealing with people that are fully formed and have no desire to pick up any new skills, new traits, anything like that. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's absolutely rules and places where those folks are well suited. Our company just at this moment does not appear to be one of those. I'd say the other thing to that point, making sure that there's a personality fit too. So that also means spending time talking with that person, having my co-founder talk with that person, talking through scenarios. What would you do in this scenario or in this situation or what have you done in the past? Not just get a sense for the skill set, but also understanding the personality. I've absolutely been guilty in the past of engaging team members or advisors because I saw boxes that could be checked that I thought would be sufficient for us for fundraising purposes. As you, Funder X, you wanted skill sets in A, B, and C specialties. I went out and got that. Now, we barely talked to these folks. They haven't done anything for us, but they're there if we need them. Like that doesn't fly. At least not with investors that are running solid due diligence, that want to talk with your advisors, want to talk with your board members want to understand what are the relations or what is kind of the operations of this company. And if it's that you're bringing in paper specialists, that'll get sniffed out in a hurry. And that's not something that's necessarily valued or appreciated. I had to learn the hard way during the early part of the fundraising process. Well, if someone is super
2: interested in these or what you're doing or wants to reach out to contact you, what are
0: some of the best ways to do that? Email is probably the best. You can find me at josh josh.articulatelabs.com. At I'm available on LinkedIn, but I think like many others now, I find it just swamped with a lot of folks that don't necessarily have any direct relevance to what we're doing and are just kind of offering services. So I'm not super responsive on LinkedIn, but I try my best there. And yeah, I'm always on the lookout for folks who are interested in our work usually specifically surgeons and physical therapists, but I'm also highly interested in talking with others who are at the same stage that we are, or maybe a little bit earlier, if I have the opportunity to, like I've done here or attempted to do here during this conversation, talk about where are some of the things that I've done wrong? Where are some of the things I could do better? Where are the things I'm trying to do better? Making sure that others don't replicate the mistakes that I've made. I'm very happy to do so. And I've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to engage in interviews like this and meet meetful seeking advice and be able to steer them in what I think, what I hope is a good direction. Great. And what's the website for Articulate Labs? We are at articulatelabs.com.
2: Well, thank you very much and good luck as you continue the development. And I look forward to seeing this on the market before too long, seeing clearance announcements and all sorts of things coming out of Articulate Lab. So thank you for being on today.
0: Thank you again.
1: Thank you for listening to the Medical Device Innovators Podcast, powered by System Insight Engineering. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by System Insight Engineering, a leading innovator in leveraging computational modeling and simulation to reduce time and cost in getting medical devices to market through insightful design decisions, DOT to support regulatory approval and clarifying understanding into device performance. System Insight Engineering helps you to better your bottom line so you can help more people faster. Find out more at siesimulation.com.